So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some of these well-known acronyms up on the screen. And I've upgraded. I've gone to Whitaker's this time around. A little bit more expensive, but I think it's worth it. Okay, so if you know what the acronym is, the first person to call it out that I hear will get a chocolate. Okay? And I want to hear the proper, like the full, full name. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. This will be, I'm going to start with an easy one. COVID-19. What does it stand for? No. What? Hoax. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy theory. I just want what the letters stand for. Maybe my instructions weren't very clear. This is an easy one. It's, yes. Okay, just if you didn't hear that, coronavirus disease, 2019, because that's when it officially started. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, right, I thought that was an easy one. What's that? You happy with that, Pam? Okay, all right, next one, M-O-H. I actually think someone called Kevin answered that. I'm just going to chuck out two, and let's hope the Kevins, wherever they are, because there's probably like 40 of them in the building, get it. Okay, Ministry of Health, right, that was pretty easy. Sadly, David Parker resigned after I made that picture, but that's too bad. Okay, right, next one, PPE. All right, how, 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 I'm going to go because the man with the gentleman who put his hand up. Yes. Correct. Okay, personal protective equipment. Excellent. I like that. Right. This is the last one, okay? <clears throat> so if you want to be in to win, this is it. This one comes with a hashtag, BLM. Was that you, Russell? Yeah, you've got a deep voice. I heard that. Okay, right. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Black Lives Matter. Now, <clears throat> just in case you were unaware, if you haven't been watching the news for the last few weeks or months, there has been um, uh, a significant movement known as Black Lives Matter, and it's actually been going for about six years. So back in 2013, in response to severe bru police brutality uh, in the United States of America, um, a, a bunch of women got together and started this, this movement, which has really kind of come to prominence in the last few weeks with the death of a man called George Floyd. And um, it's, it's actually sparked a bit of a global movement. There's been protests, there's been demonstrations right around the world. And so the leaders of this movement, they affirm the humanity of black people. And they are seeking political and personal change to give black people the recognition that they deserve. And so what's really happened is over in the past few months, those ideals have actually spread. Uh, they've been picked up by other ethnic groups around the world. So there's been protests in places like Canada, across the UK, around Europe, Australia, and even in New Zealand. So earlier in June, 1st of June, there was thousands of people that protested in Auckland uh, for this Black Lives Matter movement, and then even closer to home in Queenstown, a couple of hundred people gathered on the beach, which you may have walked on at some point, just to really kind of affirm solidarity and, and recognize uh, rights and respect for black people. Now, you may or may not know that I personally have a, uh, a background in history, <clears throat> and I believe that this Black Lives Matter movement, it's an important moment in world history. There's a real potential, a real chance for positive change and for recognition for, for black people to 
uh, and, and other ethnic groups that have been oppressed for a long time to be encouraged and supported. But this morning I want to do something a, a little bit different. <clears throat> I want to introduce you to not a movement and not even a principle. I want to introduce you to a person. Because this person essentially said Black Lives Matter way before it was a global movement. This person said Black Lives Matter before it was trending on the internet. And this person was white, this person was wealthy, this person was privileged. In fact, on the surface, all the things that the Black Lives Movement uh, protesters are criticizing. And yet, in his heart, he knew that all people were important to God. And this person knew that everybody was created in the image of God, and therefore they were deserved of dignity and respect. And so this person simply did something about it. But he was severely criticized and condemned for his actions. He faced political, he faced public, he faced personal uh, opposition. There were threats made on his life. But he persevered through a whole lot of challenges, and he was successful in improving the lives of black people around the world. So my question for you is this, it's worth two chocolates, does anybody know who I'm going to talk about? Yes, Penny, but Greg, I'll give you one because you were sort of, you know, lounging around and I've got a 12 pack. All right, Penny, one for you, one for your mum, oh, it's a whole family affair, Greg, William Wilberforce, so <clears throat> you may or may not have heard of him, just to kind of put him into historical perspective, his contemporaries included people like George Washington, first president of America, Robert Burns, the Scottish poet, <coughs> Jane Austen, the English author, and Mozart, the Australian, com uh, Australian, <laughs> Austrian, Austrian, sorry. Uh, he might have got on a boat, I'm not sure, but Austrian composer. They were all uh, contemporaries with William F Wilberforce, and you could actually argue that Wilberforce was as famous, um, if, if not perhaps even more famous than some of those men and women. He, he was at least as famous as them in his lifetime. So he was born into a wealthy merchant family in the city of Hull uh, in, in the northeast coast of England in the 18th century. And what you need to know about the 18th century in England was that it was, it was a land of contrast, particularly when it came to religion. So most people would uh, classify themselves as Christian, but it was a very superficial commitment. They would attend uh, the Anglican church, the state church, when it was required. But um, their view of God was that he was, a, he was like an impersonal force, a sort of an energy. And there was no awareness that they could have a relationship with Jesus. So for 20 years before William Wilberforce was born, uh, these two men, John Wesley and George Whitefield, they had been preaching that the Christian faith was a much greater commitment than just attending church. And as the result of their preaching, there was this, this phenomenal revival which swept across the country. Thousands of people became committed Christians. And these committed converts, converts eventually organized themselves into what became known as the Methodist Church. And so the Methodists were criticized by everybody else for being enthusiasts religious enthusiasts, particularly among the upper classes. The upper classes thought that the Methodists took religion too far. And so this was the England that William Wilberforce was born into, but sadly when he was nine years old, 
his uh, father died and his mother was very, very ill. So he was sent to live with a very wealthy aunt and uncle in the small suburb of Wimbledon. Now, this uncle and their aunt were actually religious enthusiasts. They were Methodists, and they used their enormous wealth to support the Methodist movement. So during his childhood, uh, the several years that he spent with them, Wilberforce met a whole lot of great Christian men and women, and, and he seemed to really um, enjoy that. He, he met a man called John Newton, who was formerly a slave ship captain, and it seemed like Wilberforce really thrived in this environment, but unfortunately that didn't last. His mother found out that his aunt and uncle were uh, Methodist, and she was horrified. She was terribly embarrassed, so she raced down to Wimbledon and took Wilberforce back home. And he was not supported, not encouraged in Christian things at all. And so eventually he went to Cambridge University and he spent uh, a lot of time socializing and gambling and attending parties. Sort of like Targo University, but I'm, I don't know, maybe. <clears throat> and he was apparently quite lax in his studies, but he managed to pass the course despite all his socializing. It was near the end of his university time that he started to consider a career in politics. Now, it seems that Wilberforce had a, uh, an unnatural gift for public speaking. So one of his friends, a guy called William Pitt, who, who he met at Cambridge, he became a lifelong friend, and, and Pitt became the youngest prime minister ever in Britain. He said this about Wilberforce. He said, Wilberforce had the greatest natural eloquence of all the men I ever knew. So, on a whim, Wilberforce decided to launch a campaign to be the MP for his hometown back in Hull. So he spent £8,000, which is the equivalent to three quarters of a million dollars in New Zealand's uh, money. And obviously his money and perhaps his mouth seemed to impress the voters. He got voted in, he was elected to be MP when he was just 21 years old. And this uh, gave him access to the elite social circles of London. So he would spend uh, hours and hours at a, a bunch of exclusive gentlemen's clubs. And he would be there drinking, he would be gambling, he would be socialising. He was apparently a, a well-known singer and uh, very popular on the singing circuit. But you know, despite all his privilege, despite all his prestige, it seems that Wilberforce felt empty. And so... In the year 1784, <clears throat> Parliament was on a recess, and he decided to have a holiday across France and Italy. And you've got to remember that there was no Kentucky tours or anything like that, no bus rides or anything. Travel was by horse and coach, and it took a very long time to get anywhere. So he wanted to take someone as a traveling companion, someone to sort of talk to. So he invited a, a childhood friend called Isaac Milner. Now, they must have made the, like, the oddest of traveling companions, because Milner was a huge man, physically massive. He was broad, tall, uh, huge-shouldered, and Wilberforce was really small. So he was five foot three, which is slightly above my shoulder height, and normally he weighed around about 60 kgs. So you've got this giant guy, Isaac Milner, and this tiny little guy, William Wilberforce. I imagine the coach was slightly lopsided, I don't know. But anyway, it turns out that Milner, he was a professor of mathematics at Cambridge University, so he was a very intelligent, a very informed man. And as they traveled and as they talked, Wilberforce discovered 
that his friend was a Methodist. His friend was a religious enthusiast. And throughout the conversations, Milner shattered all the stereotypes that Wilberforce had around Christianity and what it meant to be a committed Christian. And so by the time Wilberforce got back to England, he was, he was really distressed. He'd, he'd started to believe that God was real, that Jesus was his one and only son, and that the Bible was not a bunch of myths, but actually a revelation of truth. And so this kind of caused him to fall into a bit of a depression. After a few months, he eventually got out of it and, and uh, made this commitment. He committed his life to Jesus, and he said this, I confessed my great sinfulness in having so long, so long neglected the unspeakable mercies of my God and Savior. You know, in making this commitment, he was in a bit of a, a difficult situation because a person of his social status, to be a committed Christian was a very uncomfortable position to be in. And so he really struggled to reconcile his, his new beliefs with his former actions. He felt like he'd wasted so much time and so much of his wealth. So he made a, a commitment to change his lifestyle, to be more simple and to be more generous. And from that moment on, he gave away a quarter of his annual income just to support and just to bless other people. And he quit a whole lot of those social clubs that he'd been part of. He said those were easy decisions to make, but the real conflict was in his public life as a politician. Because politics then and I guess now, was a dirty business. And so Wilberforce genuinely considered whether he should become a priest or a monk, just to kind of really focus. So what he did was he arranged a secret meeting with his old friend, John Newton. And, and William Wilberforce was so fearful of being recognized meeting up with John Newton that <clears throat> he walked around the block two times, and then he snuck in the back door where he was meeting John Newton at his church. And in this meeting, Newton encouraged Wilberforce in his Christian faith. And he also encouraged him, he advised him to stay in politics. This is what he said. It is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. So this gave William Wilberforce a real boost. He began to study his Bible, he began to pray, and he really trusted for God to give him purpose for his life. And then two years after his conversion, he wrote this in his diary on the 28th of October, 1787. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, I think the suppression of the slave trade is probably reasonably obvious, but let me explain a little bit about this whole reformation of manners, because Wilberforce was not concerned that people were talking with food in their mouth or that they didn't say please or thank you enough. What he was really wanting, what the word manners means there, is the whole morals of society. And so British uh, moral standards in the 18th century were, were very, very low. People were typically treated as a commodity. This is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's just starting to kind of take shape, those factories and all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't uncommon for children as young as five and six years old to work in squalid conditions in factories for up to 10 hours at a time. Alcoholism was another big social issue. 
which, ha- which affected both the lower and the upper classes. It's recorded that uh, often MPs were drunk when they were in Parliament's sessions. There was also sexual exploitation as a, a huge social issue. Apparently 25% of single women in London were prostitutes, and their average age was just 16 years old. There were other conditions that were too. The prisons, they were primitive. There was public executions. That was sort of a, a, a kind of like a um, getting everybody together to watch criminals be executed. There was violent sports which involved the exploitation uh, and the abuse of animals. And so Wilberforce viewed all of society as needing to be reformed by God's grace. He, he felt that all people were created in the image of God and therefore they were worthy of dignity and respect. And so that's why he focused on ending the slave trade. So Britain had been involved in the slave trade since about the 16th century and, and traders followed this triangular route. They'd start up in Britain and British goods would be taken down to the coast of Africa where they'd be traded for slaves. Most of them, slaves, were kidnapped and forced against their will. And those slaves would be transported across the Atlantic Ocean, they'd end up in the West Indies where they'd be sold for plantations to work on the sugar crops, the tobacco, and the cotton. And those crops would be harvested, and then those products would be taken back to Britain. Now, this was really big business. Like, 5% of the British economy, possibly more, could be directly related to the slave trade. Just to put that into perspective, according to recent stats, New Zealand's GDP is about of tourism, tourism in New Zealand is about 5% of our GDP. So it's a pretty big deal back in the day. And a lot of people were involved, traders, ship owners, the shipbuilders, the ports, the landowners, the exporters, they all had huge investment. I mean, the annual revenue was in the millions and millions of pounds. But actually, what was greater than the economic cost was the human cost. So on average, around 40,000 Africans would be transported each year from Africa to the American colonies. Over the course of the slave trade, it's estimated around 12 million slaves were traded, and around 2 million of them didn't make it. So most of the slave ship captains, they were known as tight packers, because it made more economic sense to get as many people in your boat as possible. So they would cram them in, you can see there on that uh, diagram, there's normally two or three decks, the, the space that they would be in would possibly be maybe a meter or slightly higher than that. So there's no room to stand up. It was just lying down or squatting or sitting. They'd be shackled in there together. And sometimes the, the, the journey across the Atlantic would take, you know, several weeks, up to three months, sitting in there in cramped conditions with no sanitation and little food. It was just horrific. And Wilberforce believed that God had called him to abolish this slave trade. This is what he wrote. If it please God to honor me so far, may I be the instrument of stopping such a course of wickedness and cruelty as never before disgraced a Christian country. So all before set out to end the slave trade, and in the following years, he presented bills to Parliament calling for the end of the slave trade. His bills were defeated 11 times in the British Parliament. He was insulted by his political opponents. He was rejected by his friends. He was vilified by his enemies. He received several death threats until finally late one night on the 24th of February, 1807. After 20 years of campaigning, of speeches, of petitions, 
the British Parliament voted to outlaw the slave trade across the British Empire. And that scene is described that the MPs all rose to their feet, just clapping and cheering for Wilberforce, and he sat there in his seat with tears streaming down his face after 20 long years. And actually, for Wilberforce and his supporters, the fight wasn't over. They then set out for the next 26 years to abolish slavery right across the British Empire. So, unfortunately, he had some health conditions which forced Wilberforce to withdraw a little bit to the sidelines, but he still continued his work to free the people who were trapped in slavery, and he showed his grace. He worked with a lot of those opposition MPs who had viciously attacked him in previous years. Well, eventually, in the year 1833, three days before he died, Parliament abolished all forms of slavery uh, across the British Empire. Now, I don't know about you, but that is, I think, a remarkable achievement, just pioneering so far ahead of his time. And there were some factors which helped Wilberforce help others. Fundamentally, he was a committed Christian. So he knew that God was personally and directly involved in his life. And that truth motivated him to love God and to love other people. That's where he got his sense of justice and his sense of morality from. And his relationship was, with God was based on prayer and Bible study. So he would pray, he would read his Bible every morning before breakfast. And he would pray with his family, with his friends. He would pray at the bedside when his servants were sick. In fact, this is what um, <clears throat> Psalm 119 says. And I think he put this into practice. The psalmist writes, I rise early before the sun is up. I cry out for help and put my hope in your words. You know, Wilberforce really did put his hope in God's word. He actually memorized the entirety of Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 174 verses. And he memorized it. In fact, he would recite it to himself as he walked home from Parliament after a long session. It took him about 20 minutes to walk, and that was how long it took him to recite this. So I'm actually going to share some of the texts that Wilberforce would have known really well with you. And this one is perhaps one that you may know well. He believed in this. He said, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Wilberforce also surrounded himself with a community of friends. And he would be the first to say that what he achieved was a team effort. It wasn't all him. Historians have said that this group was known as the Clapham Circle because Wilberforce and his friends lived in uh, the London suburb of Clapham. And it was really intentional. So there was a guy, a guy called John Thornton, who was very wealthy as a merchant. He bought a whole bunch of houses in the suburb, and then his friends would come and stay, and they would have mutual support and encouragement with each other. They would eat together, they'd pray together, they'd share together, they'd discuss. And it seems that all of them, intelligent, uh, skilled people, would set their egos aside and use their abilities for the greater good. I think this text from 100, uh, Psalm 119 resonates. I am a friend to anyone who fears you, anyone who obeys your commands. And that was the open spirit of the Clapham Circle. If you respected God, then they respected you. In fact, it's a practice that the Apostle Paul encouraged the first Christians to do. He said, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And I think that was indicative of the community that Wilberforce was part of. Wilberforce also was highly committed. 
He persevered through a number of challenges, both in his political and public life, but also in his personal life. He suffered a number of setbacks. He never had good health. Right from when he was a kid, he had terrible eyesight. He also had chronic colitis, which is inflammation of the bowel. He had gout. And for the last uh, 20 years of his life, he developed curvature of the spine. So over time, one of his shoulders dropped, and his head gradually fell forward until his final years, his head would rest on his chest, unless he consciously made an effort to lift it up. In fact, he had to wear a steel brace for the last 15 years of his life just to hold himself upright. He knew the pain of a wayward son. He knew the heartache of the loss of a child. One of his daughters died when she was only 22 years old. But throughout all of that, he never complained. In fact, in a letter to one of his friends, he wrote this, How gracious is God in giving us such mitigations and helps for our infirmities. You know, as I read that, I read an echo of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119. My suffering was good for me, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. As pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. Wilberforce found his joy in Jesus. That was the secret to his success and his strength. At his funeral, this is how he was described. He was described as a most cheerful Christian. He ha- his harp appeared to always be in tune, and his son appeared to always be shining. Isn't that a great description? Wilberforce knew what true joy was. He followed God's guidance. He trusted God's strength. He did not deviate from his calling because he was a person of integrity. And he would know these words really, really well. The first two verses of Psalm 119, which he memorized. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. That's what he did. But here's the thing. I actually believe that Wilberforce's legacy is greater than what people think. So yes, he was tireless in his efforts for black African slaves. He wanted them to be honored uh, with dignity and respect, and he really pushed against racism in his day, not just uh, for Africans, but for Indians in, in the subcontinent of India and for the Māori in this new colony of New Zealand. He believed that everyone was created in the image of God, and therefore everyone had value and worth. And I think his life and legacy has huge relevance, especially now. Wilberforce challenged the culture. He affirmed that black lives matter, because life matters. And life matters because knowing God matters. And I think at this pivotal moment in history that we stand, God is more interested in our engagement than our ethnicity. He's more interested in our connection rather than our color. And unfortunately, racism didn't stop with the abolishment of slavery. In fact, it didn't even stop outlawing slavery around the world in other countries. Slavery still exists, and it's just one of a number of major issues that our society faces. But if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, then you are called to make a difference because Jesus has made a difference 
and you. Maybe you're like the young Wilberforce. You know, you're seeking purpose, you're asking God for guidance, you're trying to find out what he's calling you to. Maybe you're like 28-year-old Wilberforce, who wrote in his diary that he had found his issue, and he was going to roll up his sleeves and make a change. Or maybe you're like 48-year-old Wilberforce, who's just succeeded in seeing significant change despite years of setback, but you've realized that there is more to be done, and you are relishing the challenges that lie ahead of you. I don't know. But whatever you're at, wherever you're at, whatever issue God is calling you to, can I encourage you to live and love like Jesus? This is sort of what we want to be known for at this church. And if you want to know what Jesus was like, if you want to find out who he was as a person, read the biographies of him in this book, the Bible. You'll see how he treated people. You'll see how he pointed people to God. You'll see how he gave us an example to follow. You know, I've got, to, um, I've got to confess that over the last few weeks as I've been preparing this, I felt really inadequate. Like, you know, Wilberforce achieved in one lifetime what it would take me centuries to do. But I've realized that looking at Wilberforce's life and legacy, there's actually some questions that I can ask myself. Am I looking to God for guidance? Am I using what God has given me for His purposes and His plans? Am I making a difference for God's greatness and for His glory? Do you know, over his lifetime, Wilberforce honestly asked, and then he answered those questions of himself. And I think that's his enduring legacy for us all. Join me as we pray. God, we, we stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before, great men and women from history who have pioneered the Christian faith, and we pray that the legacy of Wilberforce and others would be a real inspiration, inspiration for racial unity, for moral reform, for social justice, for a whole bunch of stuff. We just look at the way that he loved you and loved others, and we ask that that would motivate our own lives, that we would live and love like Jesus every day. So we just ask for your strength, for your guidance in our own lives, for the struggles that we face, for the tough times that we go through, and we just pray that we would make a difference, because you've made a difference in us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen.